I'm going to use my headset. There it goes. I was a little bit discombobulated this morning. That is a word, you know. And uh, I didn't quite have myself all together here, and I hope it doesn't show in how I present the message this morning. Um, I do have a couple of cards that I'd like to share with you. Uh, First is, uh, this is from Leah Burns, and she writes, Dear church family, thank you for your prayers and support as I serve with the Encounter team. It is due to your faithful prayer that the Lord continues to grow me in my love for others and ministry as I pray he is doing also for you. Thank you for your encouragement and and care. Love in Christ, Leah Burns. And so we will probably no doubt see her soon as uh, the holidays come. Look forward to seeing her here as well. Another card here um, on behalf of the entire Fritch family and reads, Dear Tabernacle Church, um, your kindness made a difference and your thoughtfulness touched our hearts. Thank you. Thank you all very much for the wonderful service, kind and kindness towards our family during the passing of Bonnie. We are very grateful. Sincerely, the Fritch family. So just pass that along to you as well. And uh, we do have much to be thankful for. Thankful for um, the, the caring and the effort that has been made by our church family over the last while. We've had a number of um, losses, and yet it's been a blessing to my heart to see the church come together and work hard to, to be a support to those who are grieving and also rejoicing their loved ones are in heaven. And so we are, um, I am thankful. That's my thankfulness uh, this Thanksgiving. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. And I am going to pray before I open this text for us. Genesis 50 is the last chapter of the book of Genesis. I started this as a preaching topic or book back in February 2015. Now, as you know, we have taken little breaks in there, so it's not all my fault. Maybe it is my fault. Yeah, yeah, it is my fault. So, uh, that was about the time when we began the adoption process. Actually, we were coming to the conclusion of our adoption process, and Anna was joining our family uh, within a couple of months uh, when I started this, this book. So that kind of dates things. But uh, God is faithful. He's good. His word ab- abides forever, and it is for our nourishment and our, our sustaining and our need. And uh, I'm going to open with a word of prayer. I'm going to pray for uh, Philip Hunt who is a pastor in Halstead, Pennsylvania. He is uh, a friend of some in our church family and uh, want to encourage him as he opens the word to his church family this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we do come to this text. We, we come to it. I pray that we would come to it with hearts that desire to hear what you would have us to, to understand from this text. We realize that you do give pastors to, to do the task of opening, explaining uh, the truths that are in it. So I pray, Father, that as I work through this text, that I would be able to be clear, that people would be able to hear how trustworthy you are um, in all of life's 
uh, burdens that we experience, we can always find that you are trustworthy. Your good purposes are sure. They're sure for us from the foundation of the earth, and they will continue until the day of your return. And I ask, Lord, that um, you would be with Philip Hunt. Give him strength. Uh, He has a growing family, and uh, so that has its own set of challenges as one prepares for preaching from uh, week to week. And I I also would just pray that this morning, um, as he had communicated with me, has had a very spiritually stretching week. I pray that he would have freedom to speak today. And we ask for your grace, as I do as well. In your name we pray. Amen. When we try to describe how God is able to overrule the evil that we experience in this world, a lot of us will turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's a verse that many of us will turn to. Some of us may actually turn to this verse in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, which says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this is a parallel thought to what we come to in the book of Romans, and the evil that is described in Romans, though, is a little bit more generic. It's a little bit more, it's less personally directed, and so when you look at Genesis chapter 50, what we're seeing here is evil that comes from the hands of sinners. And sometimes the evil that's directed towards us by sinners can feel a whole lot more heavy, challenging for us to come to terms with. I think um, we have an understanding mind when we realize, you know, if the tree falls down on our car in our driveway one day that that's kind of an evil yes, but someone's not really doing it to me, and it's not right at me. So maybe in some ways it's a little bit easier to deal with, unless, of course, you don't have insurance that covers those sorts of things. But here we have Joseph experiencing evil from people, and that in itself is much more challenging uh, to come to terms with. And uh, I want to share kind of a, a, a story, because I know that the story of Joseph is maybe very familiar for us. I know I've just preached through it. But I want to share something from our American history that, that also illustrates the, the goodness of God in the midst of evil events. I was thankful to Eric Cooley, who shared with me the story last week of Squanto. Now, it's a very Thanksgiving-y type of story, so it kind of fits what we're in right now in the month of November. Um, but uh, we may think of Squanto, and we may think of him as being the one who was there to assist the Mayflower pilgrims in learning how to sow the corn and fertilize the corn with fish and that type of thing, and how to survive. But we may not realize some of the backstory around Squanto. And uh, we realize that the pilgrims came from England uh, via Holland for the purpose of religious freedom. And uh, 
they came to Massachusetts in 1620. And so every Thanksgiving, we kind of, the kids even in the kindergarten will start learning about the pilgrims even before they even know what America is, really. It's kind of a funny thing. But it's in our psyche. Um, But Squanto um, was alive and well before the pilgrims arrived. And in 1608, an English ship came um, along the coastline, and they found themselves trading with some Pentuxet Indians, and they made themselves off as if they were kind people willing to trade, and instead what they did was they captured several of them and took them into slavery. In fact, Squanto was one of those who went into slavery, and he was taken to Spain, And in Spain, he was purchased by some friars in the Catholic Church, and they treated him very, very well. And eventually, they gave him his freedom, and and, uh, he had in his heart this strong urge to return to America. And uh, in his desire to return to America, it might have been a pipe dream, actually, because very few people could actually get themselves to America in those days. And so, he made his way to London, And in London, he learned English, and he offered his services to translate the Native American language for a one-way ticket back to North America. And in 1618, a ship was found, and they went, he went back, and he was landed. And when he arrived, what he discovered in his own home village was that there was no one there to greet him. No one showed up because they had all died. They had all died of smallpox that had been delivered to them through uh, European ships coming. And in the you think about it, he went through a very hard experience. He was enslaved, but in his return voyage, his life was spared because he had been enslaved. Now, that's an awful evil thing, but you also, there's something else that that is especially important for us to remember as well. when the Mayflower Pilgrims came and landed in Plymouth, they went through a horrible winter. And in the spring, out of the woods walked an Indian named Squanto, who spoke perfect English and could explain to them how to do corn and fertilize, find lobster and eat eel and all of that. That was a miracle of God's providence to provide a savior through somebody who had been captive (laughs) and captured. A remarkable. And uh, Squanto, um, in some ways, was like Ruth in the Old Testament. He embraced the pilgrims, and their God became his God. And he died with the desire to go to the Englishman's God in heaven when he died. What a beautiful testimony of God's work to do good things for Squanto and also for his people. Um, I know that uh, we look at the story like that. We have to realize that God had good purposes even in the face of death, in the face of sinners, and also suffering that was experienced. And I know that uh, in this story of 
of Joseph, Joseph also had all of those elements to deal with. He had to deal with the suffering of, of death, the suffering from sinners, and there is, there is much that he experienced. He had to learn to trust God's good purposes so that he was able to forgive those who had done wrong to him. The unfortunate fact is, is that many of us do experience suffering at the hands of sinners. And some of us don't quite know how to forgive, and we allow bitterness to dwell within ourselves. And it takes a tremendous amount of faith to trust a sovereign God who allows things that we can't fully grasp and understand in order to have an attitude and disposition to forgive those around us. So this morning, in this text, we're going to see, like Squanto, like Joseph, what we're going to see here is that God, what God allows, ultimately aligns with his good purposes. And we have to believe that. We have to believe that. And our capacity to, to believe that is directly related to how we think about God. Maybe you can finish this phrase with me this morning. If God is not Lord of all, he is not God, Lord of at, at all. And that simple statement, we have to recognize and believe with, with absolute certainty because if we don't, it will, it will affect how we process injustice. God may not be the one that's directing, directly afflicting us There's always secondary causes going on here, but God is able to reframe the injustice that we experience because God is greater than death, God is greater than sinners, and he is greater than suffering. We have to believe this. And the first point as we start to read here in the text, chapter 50, and we're going to start actually back in 49 this morning, that God is greater than death. We need to understand that he is greater than death. So in chapter 49, verse 28, we read this. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought, excuse me, bought with the field, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. And the field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in the eyes 
Please speak to the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father hath made me swear, saying, I am about to die. And in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he has made you swear. And so Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of this household and all the elders of the land of Egypt and as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went, out, went up from him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the, of the land, the Canaanites, saw that the mourning, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. That is a long discussion of the burial process of Jacob. It's very intentional. It's very, very slowly labored with detail. I'm not going to go into all the detail, but I want to highlight the significance that is intended here is that this was supposed to feel very heavy to those Israelites who were listening to this as Moses would read this to them. This was supposed to feel dark and heavy. And many of the ancient world religions considered death to be a god with power and dominion. You may be acquainted with some of the ancient gods. Um, Thanatos in the Greek religion was the personification of death. Osiris in Egyptian culture was the god of the underworld. Uh, Nergal in Babylon was the god of the dead and he had special privilege in the government and the rule of the dead. And the reality though I think we need to take from this hearing of the death is that if death has the last word for God's saints, then death would be a God. But death does not have the last word. The everlasting God has the last word regarding death. You know, there were secular Jews in Jesus' day who doubted the reality of a resurrection. They were called Sadducees, and they came to Jesus, and they tried to um, tempt him and trick him with a hard question about a woman who had multiple husbands and who, who, who she would be married to in the resurrection. And uh, Jesus rebuked them, and then he said to them, hey, God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. 
I think that it's important to realize that the, the Israelites were going into a culture that, that considered death to be a god. And we here in America, frankly, live in a culture of death. We live in a culture that perhaps doesn't speak about death, but they're very willing to let innocent people die. Um, in fact, at a recent political debate, one candidate said that innocent life, the, the taking of innocent human life, was a basic right of humanity. That should trouble us, yes. But we also need to know that as our culture becomes more willing to take life, that death itself is not a god. Death is a natural law that cuts down all of our dreams and our aspirations. I shared with someone this week that I, I didn't think that I would likely live much more beyond 2060. I, I, you know, in 40 years, I'm going to be just over 80 years of age. And uh, in time, every one of us will be, as Jacob described it, gathered to our people. We'll be gathered to our people and there is a truth and a necessity to dealing with our own mortality. The reality is, is that someone is going to shut our eyes eventually, just as it, they shut Jacob's eyes. But death itself doesn't have the last word. God does. He is the everlasting God. Notice uh, in chapter 49, verse 29, that Jacob says, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers. Why does Jacob want so desperately to be buried with his ancestors in the cave of Ephron? He wants to be buried with them, I believe, because he is confident in the everlasting God. He's confident because God had come to him before he left Canaan, and said to them in this way, in Genesis 46, you can look back there with me at Genesis 46 and verse 4, God said this to Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you up again. God is going to bring Jacob up out of Egypt again. And the word you is singular. It's not you as in your whole family, but you singularly. Jacob has every confidence that he will be brought up again. Now we read in chapter 50 that after his body perished, that the Egyptians mummified him and they went through all of the steps, and I won't gore you with the details of what that entails. But then his body is then taken by chariot and also with a great company over to the promised land. And he is, uh, take, they mourn for him. It's really interesting. If you look at a map, they didn't take the most direct route. They actually went around the Dead Sea and up to the eastern side. And then they crossed over the Jordan River to go over. Now, what should that trigger in your mind? It was the route 
that the offspring 400 years later would take to go into the promised land. And Jacob, his own body, even though it's perished, is traveling the same route and going to cross over into the promised land. Now he's, I believe, there is an instructive prophecy in that, but there's something else. Jacob believes in God's promise that he will be brought up from the grave again and he will stand in the promised land again. Jacob is going to come up, yes, in his offspring, but he is also going to be there with the Lord in the promised land one day again. So God allows death to occur, and so we see death in this part of the story, but God is the everlasting God, and death does not defeat God. Death itself ultimately aligns with God's good purposes. How is that possible? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53, Paul said that this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. We can't just go directly into heaven with these mortal bodies, they have to be transformed. And so, death is a passageway directly into the presence of God. And I think that we have to examine this truth. If we believe this truth, it's going to change how we live in this lifetime. We will not allow bitterness to take over our lives when those we love pass into the hands of God if they have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's, they're, they're absent from the body and they are present with the Lord. We have to say in our hearts, I don't believe that death has the final word. God has the final word because God is greater than death. The next segment is a smaller segment of verses verses 15 to 21, but we hear, we see that God is greater than sinners. God is greater than sinners. Let's read verse 15. And when Joseph's brothers saw that, they, that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In this exchange, you see Joseph expressing his confidence that God is greater than what he has received 
from the hand of sinners. Yet, I think you also see in this exchange, you see a person who is truly dealing with the effect of sin, not minimizing it, understanding it, and then choosing to, to absorb it and take it, even though it wasn't his to take. And that is a process of forgiving other people. And in verse 15 to 16, I want us to see how, how, he, how he deals with the sinfulness of sin and, and even the description that his brothers offer of their own actions is very telling. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that we cannot adequately forgive a person if we don't take account of the injustice that we have had against us. Now, notice that Joseph does not dispute the injustice that occurred to his brothers. In fact, um, he, he, he acknowledges it in what he says. And uh, he says, um, Do not fear, for I am, am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. So he, he didn't say, well, this was just a slip up. This was just, you know, a, 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 an innocent mistake. He, he's saying, look, this was evil. It was evil. And I'm now choosing to accept that. And in the process of analyzing the sin, notice that the brothers recognized the injustice that they perpetrated against their brother. Um, they acknowledge that he has a right to expect repayment, to kind of give them back what they owe because of what they've done to him. Um, he requ- he's, they basically say, look, um, please, be, you know, please forgive the transgressions of, you know, they said in verse 17, excuse me, he will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we have done. Pay us back. And they describe their actions as causing misery, of causing distress and injury. You think about the horror, the horror of being in a pit and looking up and seeing your potential deliverers, the ones who could pull you up out of the pit, taunting you. They would have, he would have been screaming to them, pleading with them, and they were stubbornly hardening their ears and heart. They chained him and put him in the caravan to go down to Egypt. They were trading cash for him. Those things are repulsive. They, they would have stuck and clung to Joseph. And the reason is that we find something like that to be so atrocious is because family owes one another trust. Joseph it should have had every right to expect that his brothers would treat him with respect. That was owed to him as a family member. Joseph deserved reciprocal love and respect. And their brothers, though, in this moment, are very honest about what they have done wrong. They have assessed it correctly. And they say in verse 17, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. That word transgression literally means a breach of trust. And that's exactly what their actions were. It is a grave sin 
when family members disown and remove family members from relationship. It is a hard thing psychologically to bear internally because we were designed to live in family relationship. That's why it's so horrendous to us. And this betrayal of trust signifies that they have, that Joseph has every right to require punishment. They describe what they do as sin. Not only does Joseph have the right to exact punishment, you know who else does? God does. That word sin signifies that they recognize this wasn't just an offense against Joseph, it's an offense against God Almighty. And they're willing to recognize this. They're willing to recognize this. And we need to recognize this. That all sin is a betrayal of God's purposeful relationship with his creation. God has built us, made us to have a relationship with him. And when we sin, what we are doing is betraying the trust that God has established with us. And so I want us to see that in the recognition of the sinfulness as being truly sinful, it allows for an appropriate forgiveness to take place. Not just a quick, hey, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then two or three months later, he's starting to think about it again. No, he's, he's, he's taking the time to evaluate now what he's hearing and to deal with it properly. And I think it's important for us to realize that for us as human beings, when we have been hurt and when we have been betrayed, we have to humble ourselves and realize that God is greater than sinners who hurt us. Sinners who hurt us never have the final word. God has that final word. And this is what was able to provide a capacity in Joseph to forgive his brothers. And you know what? Joseph weeps when he hears this message from his brothers. There's, there's already been something happening inside of his life which is preparing him for this moment. In fact, he's, he's already kind of communicated forgiveness to his brothers earlier on. Maybe they didn't have this full discussion, but he was ready to forgive them. There's emotional cost, though, here that's, that's going on. And you can see it when he weeps. He's, he's perhaps even feeling some of the pain and the scars rip open again as he's having to consciously tell them that he, he's going to forgive them. Forgiveness can be a disputed topic among Christians, and a lot of it has to do with our maybe not abil- inability sometimes to grasp all of the issues that are involved. And sometimes we ask ourselves, do we, do we forgive a person if they have not requested it? Does forgiveness mean that nothing has ever happened? Does forgiveness mean that we restore relationship to normal functions? And to answer some of these questions, I think we need to listen carefully to what Joseph is saying. And first, we need to recognize in verse 19, he recognizes the justice is ultimately in God's hands. And we all have to think, when we are going to forgive somebody, we have to recognize that God is the one ultimately in control of all things. Joseph uh, 
could have engineered justice for himself in this moment, but he doesn't. Joseph recognizes that God is greater. In fact, he has come to terms with God's sovereignty through the years so that he was ready to forgive. You know, forgiveness is the canceling of debt. How many of us, uh, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, fumble it? When you get to that line where it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How many will want to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have, um, as we also have forgiven our debtors, sorry. See, I just fumbled it right there. The trespasses word is actually not in the original Lord's Prayer. It's a few verses down where Jesus explains what these debts are and what they mean. What does it mean to forgive another person their debts? And that's what forgiveness is. It's canceling debt that people owe to us. And God had already paid that debt for Joseph. What do you mean? Well, what, what more could the brothers have done to make it up to Joseph than that God had already done for him? Think about, he went into the, to the cellar, into the slave cellar. And what happened? He's now second in command of the nation. These brothers can't do anything to repay him. God has replaced everything for him. He's given him a family. He's given him offspring. He's given him wealth. And this is what motivates Joseph to recognize that he is able to cancel this debt that is owed to him. He recognized that God has paid it all. And so whenever we who are Christians have been hurt, we need to recognize that ultimately God in his grace and his mercy has paid every debt against us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We, what more can people pay to us than has already been paid by the blood of Christ? And this is how we forgive one another. We recognize that Christ has already settled the score. He's given us everything in Jesus Christ. And so, it's unhelpful for us to realize this. Secondly, debt is canceled upon repentance. I think it's important for us to realize that Joseph is looking at his family who are repentant. He's seeing. Now, in his heart, he's already come to terms that these people can't pay him anything anyway. But he is ready now to receive them and and offer them and express to them that their debt has been covered. And this occurs through the transaction of repentance. Now, does this mean that we bear a grudge against a person until they say those magic words, will you please forgive me? No. No. Because in your heart, you have already prepared yourself to verbalize what the other person needs to hear. In fact, um, uh, Luke chapter 17 says, if your brother sins, you rebuke him. And if he repents, 
you forgive him. And I think that's a helpful thing to remember that when we interact with others who genuinely have done wrong, we don't treat them as if nothing ever happened. I mean, we treat people with respect and kindness and that type of thing. But we do not give them the impression that this, this has actually been canceled because it doesn't serve them to go through the process of humbling and repenting and turning from their sin. Here, we have Joseph communicating forgiveness because he sees within their lives that they are ready and they're repentant. They want to have their debt canceled. They want to have their debt canceled. And that's how it is with, with how we receive Jesus Christ. God died on the cross, didn't he? To cancel sins. But it did not create a universal salvation for everyone. It's for those who humble themselves and repent of their sins that gift of forgiveness is granted. And so in all of our relationships, we need to understand some of these. This, this is meat, and this is how we apply it. It's important for us to see this. And the third piece here that is important for us to see is that Joseph communicated forgiveness. And that can be the missing link in a lot of our relationships and problems is that when a person is genuinely sorry for their sins that they've done to us, that we, we fail to let them know that we have forgiven them, that we love them and want to have relationship with them. In verse 21, this is exactly what, 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 what Joseph does. He, he spoke kindly to them, it says, um, and uh, he says, do not fear. He said, do not fear a couple of times. He wanted them to know that it's going to be okay. And uh, the word speaking kindly to him literally means that he spoke to their heart. He spoke to their heart. And that's very difficult to help a person know that they have been forgiven. Uh, forgiveness and communication is important. Uh, Corey Ten Boom, you may know her story. She had been held in a Nazi concentration camp, and her sister died in the camp. And after the war, she went through a process of learning how to forgive others. And she was doing a talk, and at that talk, there was someone who came up to her afterwards and said to her, Fraulein, will you forgive me? I know that God has forgiven me, but will you forgive, her, forgive me for being how I was in the concentration camp that you and your sister were in? And she had to look at him and calculate the cost as to what would be required to forgive him. And it's, she said, I'll let her say it in her own words how difficult this can be. She said, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands the former guard and the former prisoner. And she said verbally, I forgive you. And she was having a hard time getting her hand up to, to do it, but she got it up there. And this is what she said, I never had known God's love so intently as I did right then. And having thus learned to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. So she says, it's not like I, I never, it never like became easy for me. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable, 
thoughts just naturally flowed from me then on. But they didn't. If there's one thing that I have learned at 80 years of age is that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only then that I draw upon them fresh from God each day. But it is what she's communicating. It's very difficult to communicate forgiveness to people who have hurt us. And we have to get to that place. That is where true forgiveness occurs when the other person knows that they have been forgiven. So, God is greater than death. God is greater than what we experience from sinners. But you know, God is also greater than our suffering. God is greater than our suffering. Verse 22 to 26, we read this. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph passes, but in this passing, Joseph communicates to his brothers that one day God is going to come and visit his people again and bring them up out of Egypt. This is the last verses of the book of Genesis, and they anticipate the book of Exodus. Joseph lived a long time to see his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, and he says twice that God will visit them. What does it mean that God will visit the children of Israel? This is not the same thing as we might say, we're going to grandma and grandpa's house to visit them. Because those images kind of bring to our mind happy thoughts, enjoyable thoughts of Thanksgiving turkey and presents around the tree. This kind of visitation is different. It's the kind of visitation that has suffering built into it, has suffering. God is going to come and visit Israel in the midst of their affliction and make good on the promises that he had made to them. I don't know if you realize this, but a core teaching of Buddhism is that life is suffering. Life is suffering. And that suffering ends when we remove ourselves mentally from the world around us. Because suffering is senseless. Christians, on the other hand, believe that suffering is a result of sin, but yet suffering can have a purpose that is greater than we can comprehend. How do we come to this realization as Christians? We do so because God himself left the comfort and glory of heaven, became a human being, and endured intense suffering to create good for the world. 
And if the God of creation who is, who is above all suffering saw it good to enter into suffering to create good, then there could be a possibility the suffering we experience in this world can also have a good result and good purpose. God did do something great through the children of Israel. He formed them into a nation with an identity. And that's going to be a sermon for another time about the Passover and all the glory that was seen in that moment. But the reality is, is that God, who sees fit to allow suffering, is also master of it and can create good things out of the suffering we experience. He can create beauty out of ashes that we couldn't even see possibly being there. And so, as we come to the conclusion of the book of Genesis, what we're seeing is that God is greater than death. God is greater than the effect of sinners upon us. He's greater than suffering that we may experience in this world. And the miracle of Joseph is a great miracle. It's, it's, it's on the same, it's on the level of, you know, we might get enamored with a historical story like Squanto, but these are acts of God that he does in this world. And he does all of this for the good of his people, to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And God has great purposes for his people. We need to take courage when we come to texts like this and realize that whatever God allows for us to endure, it's ultimately going to align with his good purposes for his people. Now, if we truly believe this, it will change the way we live. It will cause us to be like Joseph and bless others around us with forgiveness. It will cause us, as members of the tabernacle, to learn the beauty of God's grace and to live it out in fellowship with one another. It will cause families who endure affliction from one another to learn how to forgive one another. This is principles of the gospel. This is available for all of us in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this text, and we, we know that you do all things for your glory, but you also do them for the good of your people. I pray, Father, that as we, as we go about this life, that we would be humble, that we would be thinking of the relationships that we have around us and how we can demonstrate our forgiving spirit so that when people are repentant and they do express their sorrow for sin, that we would be ready to receive them kindly, gently, for your, for your great purposes in their life and in our own. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.